Geekiest 29 is powered by Cliff Central, uncensored, unhinged, and unradio. Hello and welcome to the Digital Kung Fu Show, the podcast and videocast for startup founders and entrepreneurs. Even if you're alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs across the world hustling today's markets. At Digital Kung Fu, we have one goal, to help entrepreneurs succeed in their ventures through information sharing, digitally connecting them with other entrepreneurs, and by dissecting and deconstructing the world's leading business minds right here on this show. Remember, you can view the full show notes on our website at digitalkungfu.co. .za or tweet this show using our handle at Digital Kung Fu ZA or follow us on Facebook.com slash Digital Kung Fu ZA. One of my favorite online retailers in South Africa is a brand called Yappy Chef. You can check them out at yappychef.com. Uh, they were doing some marketing the other day and they produced this video effectively called the um, sort of a 10-year anniversary video of the Yappy Chef brand. And in it, um, I found the story to be quite compelling um, where um, they really unpacked the kind of early embryonic stages of Yappy Chef and how it has today evolved into one of South Africa's premier uh, e-commerce retailers. So I reached out to Andrew Smith, the CEO, to really understand a little bit more about the backstory behind Yappy Chef, but really I wanted to get uh, underneath the hood. I really wanted to understand the meat and potatoes of what they do as a business and how they see the growth of the economy. Uh, by that, I mean the e-commerce economy in South Africa really uh, unpacking itself or, or unfolding in the future and where they see uh, their own brand uh, playing a role within that, um, but also, uh, more importantly, some of the lessons that they've learned to date um, and how they apply to entrepreneurs who may or may not be uh, looking to start uh, a company within the e-commerce space. So without further ado, enter Andrew Smith. How's it, guys? And welcome to the 29th installment of the Digital Kung Fu Show. My name is Matt Brown, and I'd like to kick us off with a quote by Seth Godin. The quote, uh, the reason it seems that prices all your customers care about is because you haven't given them anything else to care about, end quote. So our guest today is Andrew Smith. He's the co-founder and CEO of Yappy Chef, one of South Africa's premier e-commerce retailers. Andrew, thank you for your time today. It's great to have you in the hot seat. Thanks, Matt. It's good to be here. Cool. So um, your e-commerce foray didn't uh, really start with Yappy Chef. Um, so maybe you can just take a, a second just to fill us in on how your kind of entrepreneurial um, sort of journey began and what's that backstory you'd like to share uh, at this time? Sure. So <laughs> some people are interested in the very backstory and then maybe this is the right context for it. I after school, I came down to UCT and I spent um, three months in a business science uh, degree, a computer science degree, and, and I dropped out of that, uh, like all good techie entrepreneurs do. And uh, and I I went I went back and I decided you know I can't spend four years 
sitting in a lecture hall. I mean, we were literally handwriting Java programs on pieces of paper, um, such as the, the mass education that, that first year is. And it was going to cost too much money and take too long. And, and I thought there could be better things to do. So I, I went back. I'm originally from Peter Maritzburg, and I, I managed to get a job in a small web development agency. And I was, I was designing websites and, and doing development for various business systems and things. And kind of, I suppose that was a, a lucky break to an extent. And, and then after a couple of years of that, uh, I moved back down to Cape Town and uh, created a, a web development agency down here. And and along with, with Shane Dryden and, and, and a few other people along the way, we were doing work for clients. And, and, and that feels entrepreneurial. It feels like you're uh, you know, running a business. But in reality, you're just selling your time for the worst possible type of boss, a boss who doesn't care if you're sick or if you want to go and leave. You know, if you, if you don't do the time, you, you don't get the money. And... Uh, <laughs> We we just we really wanted to sell a product. We wanted to have something that you, you wake up in the morning and look in the bank account and say, "Hey, wow, you know, someone bought something from us," uh, and and then you work on on improving that rather than just you know selling your time and building something for someone else. So we we decided the only way to do that was to actually just do it in a in a in an event style. And there were it was Shane and I, and there were two other friends, um, Fred and John, and we thought, well, if we make a a three day event and we come together. Uh, and then we're going to leave that event having built something in e-commerce. And so each of us bought a product, and the product that uh, that we ended up choosing was was the Bug Zapper, which you might have come across. It's a, a racket with with electric strings that you swat flies and mosquitoes with. And, uh, and so that was that, that was the site that we that we built in the three days. We, we created the site, and we found a way of delivering the products and a way of taking payment. And we made one sale to my mom. On Saturday, we have forgotten about marketing. And, Success. Uh, and you can't really <laughs> but, you know, from that time on, uh, for the next, we probably ran that site for about seven years or so. We sold about 10,000 bug zappers, about one and a half million rands of bug zappers sold online. And, and this is in a, in a market where people say, no, nobody can, you, know, you can't sell things online and not enough people have internet access and you know, payment is too difficult, and, and we proved that if you can if you can sell bug zappers, uh, you can probably sell more than uh, than, than the market thought that we could. And so we we just thought if we've got all this infrastructure, we can just roll out other sites. So we started selling flags, country flags, and flag poles online. And and the next thing we we thought about was was kitchen tools. And Shane had always had a, a passion for cooking and. Uh, and and you know watch a lot of tea, food TV and and we thought well maybe there's some things that chefs use some products that chefs use that the ordinary person doesn't have access to and we we had a, a chef friend and we went to her and said you know what are the twelve tools that that you chefs know about that us ordinary people don't know about and you know she said yeah chefs use the same as everyone else there's nothing there's no secret fancy gadgets and um, but but actually the uh, this is one one set of tongs that I have that I got overseas that you can't get them locally. And if you sold those, that would, that would be worthwhile. And these tongs were, were called QZ Pro. They were a brand that we recognized because we had friends who were the, the importers of QZ Pro. And we realized that there was a, a gap between 
particular brands and products that people wanted and what was available in the stores. And that's what worked really well in e-commerce certainly back then is that if you knew that you could get it in a shop, you would probably go to a physical store and buy it. The only reason you shopped online was for something like a, a Swedish flag or a bug zapping racket or a, a brand of kitchen tools that you couldn't get in a physical store because, you know, online was not, not mainstream retail like, like it has been in the last few years. So we launched uh, Yappy Chef in August 2006. So it's exactly 10 years ago now from when we recorded this. And uh, we made the first sale on the 16th of August to Shane's dad. So the trend had continued. And... Uh, <laughs> And the, the product was a QZ Pro product because that was all that we listed. We listed started with 32 products. There were no credit card facilities. You had to pay with an EMT. Uh, and it was running from my lounge. And, and we were still we still were working for clients. In fact, we worked for clients for the next uh, five years before we, we eventually shut down all the other work and, and all the other sites and we just focused on, on Yappy Shift. So it was a long, slow start. It wasn't a, you know, we didn't go and raise a whole lot of um, capital or bond our houses or quit our jobs. We, we just started. We started the evenings and we, uh, it was a very slow start. You know, we took, um, it took until the November of that first year to make a sale to someone we didn't know, a non-family member or friend. Um, and her name was Denise. And when, when she made that sale, we thought, we can't just put a product in a box and send it off to her. You know, she's trusted that, uh, that if she pays the money, she's going to get something. And we should reward that trust in some way. So we wrote a letter and we said, yeah, thanks so much for shopping from us. And, uh, and that has continued to this day. We still handwrite cards in every box. We still want people to feel like we're human beings who are, um, are serving them on the other side of the internet. And, and that's, I suppose, one of the things we become, we become known for. Um, we, in the first year, we made 200 sales and, and it has grown obviously a lot since then to, to where we are today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's been quite a journey. So congratulations on your, on your 10 year anniversary. How do you feel? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can't literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of stats when you're starting a business about how few companies make it to 10 years. And, uh, and so in a sense, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice achievement. We made it this far. We, there's not so many stats on how many companies make it to 11 years or beyond. So, so this is uncharted. We're in uncharted territory now. But, uh, yeah, I think to an extent we have, we've matured, we've grown up a bit. We maybe we're a little bit more certain about uh, what we bring and, and what we're going to focus on. So uh, it's a, we're in a good place right now. We're in a good season of, um, I suppose, just really you know, doubling down on the things that we know matter and perhaps letting go of some of the things that 
we think maybe don't matter as much. Um, and yeah, and, and looking forward to the future. Speaking of what matters, what does matter in the e-commerce environment today in your view? Yeah, you, know, you, you, you launched with that quote um, from, from Seth about uh, people will focus on price if you don't give them something else. Uh, you know, price is a, is a tricky thing online because it, it's so much more visible. And I, I think it's if you're shopping from your local, your local shop or your local uh, dry cleaner or, or something, you're not, you're not competing from a price point of view against everyone in the whole country or even everyone in the whole world. And, and online makes price so much more visible. It's so easy just to click, 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 and I've seen prices from a whole lot of different places. And, and that has a natural pressure on the market to, to be the cheapest and to discount. And there's always someone you know, today who's willing to sacrifice margin in order to win market share. Uh, and, and so there's, there's a huge price pressure. And, and I can understand that. You know, we, we, we're not overpriced. We don't, um, we don't sell things more expensive necessarily, um, but other people might be selling them at, at, at a big discount. And uh, But I can also understand someone who goes somewhere else, you know, when the product is radically more expensive. Um, I, I, I can't blame them necessarily. Uh, we have tried to focus on, uh, and definitely on service and, and reliability and trust and range and the ease of use of our website and our, um, and our fulfillment, you know, the accuracy and, and speed and reliability of that and, and our loyalty to customers and how we treat them afterwards. And so th- there's a couple of key things that we have, we've said, you know, this is what's going to win in the long term. It might not win in the short term, but if we, if we keep plugging away at this, if we keep giving people um, a, a trust in who we are, uh, they'll keep coming back. And, you know, our, We've, we've carved out a few niches for ourselves, I think, and things that we really compete uh, just uniquely on. And, and things like wedding registries are, you know, wedding registries is a, is a complete package in terms of the way, the way that the, the, the process works and the website works for you and, and how your guests interact with it and, and how we do the delivery and how we do the, you know, the messages from your guests. And, and, and I think if we, we, we package all that together and say we're really going to specialize and focus on that. And, you know, Woolworths a couple of months ago turned off their wedding registries. They said, you know, wedding registries are too hard. Uh, we can sell something to someone in a store, but we, we just can't manage registries. And so, you know, we've, we've, we've tried to look at e-commerce as, as being the complete shopping experience, uh, which, which starts with range uh, and what we sell and, and the price of it, sell that and, and how different it is and how broad it is. And, um, and then, you know, all the way through to, to website and fulfillment and service and, and, and loyalty and, and try to put all that together and say that's where we can, we can compete. Mm. How do you approach selecting new niches to go into? Because um, on the, when someone says Yuffie Chef, people go, well, kitchen stuff, you know. <laughs> um, and of course, now like you just described, you're branching into new niches and so forth. Um, how do you approach that? Uh, do, you, do you approach it from like, a, what's the addressable market size? Is it, a, is it more sort of less um, research driven and more kind of intuitive you know, as a process for you, how do you approach category selection and so on? Yeah, so we um, we look back now on our the category of kitchen and food that we're in, and, and I can give you a lot of reasons why it's a good category for us to be in. Uh, but that's not how we started. We we started with like we kind of liked it to it, and so a lot of it is is post rationalization. I mean, I, I suppose the type of survivorship bias you you're interviewing me because. 
our choices happen to work, um, and and then we survive this long. So you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of good reasons why Academy works. I, I guess I've touched on some of those things. Things like like gifting. Um, like uh, wedding registries, that the fact that we sell brands that people know and they want to they want to go out and look for, you know, Lucrece, Pops or Vistoff knives, the things that, that work well online. So there's a there's a number of things that make our category work. That I suppose if we were going to go into another category, we would we would would want to try and understand the the focus around that. We've decided to stay within kitchen as a as a, if you want to call that a niche, I, I suppose a, a vertical, um, mostly because there's there's something about specialising that I think gives customers a uh, a sense of security. You know, if, if let's say I, I wanted to get into motorbikes and I, I didn't know anything about motorbikes, and I knew I knew one of my friends was just mad about motorbikes. He had six of them in his garage, and he'd been riding since he was a kid. And he had every magazine, and he watched every TV program. I probably go to him and say, "Hey, what motorbike should I buy?" Because because that's what he specialised in. And, and if I had another friend who who had a motorbike, but you know, he also had a kayak, and he was like paragliding and you know, like fishing a bit on the weekends. You'd say, okay, well, you do know a little bit about motorbikes, but um, let me go with the guy who, who really has invested in this. And so you know, we've been, obviously, everyone comes to us over the years and says, why aren't you selling this type of product or that type of product? And, and we've decided that, that there's a benefit in, in sticking to kitchen. That, uh, but within kitchen, we can obviously grow, you know, we mentioned things like wedding registries or gifting, or, um, and, and we're now developing our own products, uh, actually Appichet branded products and, and various others. We, we have a small store in, our, um, in, in the business park where, where our warehouse is based. We've got, a, I guess, a kind of outlet store where uh, we're experimenting with omni-channel and what that looks like. So we're, we're choosing to stick within Kitchen broadly to remain the experts in that space, but then to see, you know, how can we complete that offering as, as best as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's. Um, I was given a piece of advice once, that, um, which basically described the benefits of niching down. Where mm-hmm. one, there are fewer competitors, and if you own one niche, that customer base that you build within that particular well niche vertical <laughs> um, will actually yeah. allow you to branch out into into other channels. So, speaking of um, branching out into other channels, I don't know whether you saw uh, there was a piece I was reading on TechCrunch. Um, and it was about Amazon in the U.S. looking to expand into the physical store space, which I thought was amazing just as a concept. Um, and so have you guys given any thought to, to following a similar model? Yeah, you know, to an extent, I think some of the talk around Amazon is, is probably lacks a bit of detail. Amazon sells... I don't know, something like 15 million products. Um, and, and if plus, if you take their marketplace, it's 100 million products. They are, they're never going to have a store that sells 15 million products. And, and most of what I understand about their stores is it's very much around the Amazon products themselves, like the Kindles or the Kindle Fires. And, you know, they, they're not going to suddenly start selling uh, nappies or, um, <laughs> yeah, all point pens from some Manhattan store. So I think people latch onto this idea that Amazon's going into physical stores, but I think the picture is slightly, slightly different. There's often talk that Amazon will buy some sort of distressed retailer. Um, I, I don't see that necessarily for them, but you are seeing that in other places. Walmart jet.com recently. So, you know, Walmart has been, they've been in online for a while, um, but they're nowhere near the size of, of what Amazon is in online. And, uh, and so you might see some of the physical retailers who are, 
who are finding various ways to expand their, their online footprint. Um, I think Amazon is really big enough and they've also diversified now into enough other areas like like with their web services and with digital content and various other things that I think stores would be a be a distraction for them. Um, you know, for ourselves, there's always the, um, the, the idea or the thought that, that why aren't we in physical stores? Uh, you know, in South Africa, we only have one, maybe 2% of, of retail that is online and the other 98% is, is in physical stores. And so if we as the Chef are specializing online, there's only so much of the market that we can win. Uh, I think that, 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 is, that is very true. And even from our little shop that we have here, there's something amazingly simple of someone arriving, they, they pick up the product, they hand over the money and they leave. And we think, wow, that transaction is oh, so easy. You know, online is just, it's so difficult where the, the warehousing and the picking and the packing and the delivery and the person started home and you have to re-deliver it and then arrive broken and you've got to try and return it. And you know, Online has some immense problems to, to overcome. Um, but, uh, but, but for us, I guess we're choosing to overcome those problems because we're specialists in that. If we went into online, you know, even in South Africa, uh, which is not necessarily a very big market, you've, you've got some of our competitors would have a hundred physical stores uh, spread out across the country. And each of them has got stock and shop fittings and staff and, uh, and the, the logistics between all those stores. And, and so I, I think we've just chosen to stick in an area that, that we're good at, um, that is growing very rapidly uh, and, and be the, be the experts in that. But down the line, we'll see. There's, there's no, there's no set course for the future as such. Yeah. It's, um, it's a line item you'd rather not have in your CapEx, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, probably we've, um, and, and that's I suppose where we've. There's still other areas that we can grow. In. Uh, I, I mentioned our own brand of products. We've also, you know, we've been working on uh, digital products like our online cooking courses. We've, uh, you know, we've got other areas that we, we think we can invest in and differentiate more than than if we just opened the store. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the two um, percent of local retail sales. Um, the proportion of that e-commerce actually makes up in the retail space. Um, and to put that number in perspective, it's typically 10 times higher in developed economies like the U S and the UK and so forth. Um, but you guys nonetheless are growing at, you know, 20 to 30% a year as the last um, stat that I, that was publicly available. Um, so I wanted to get your opinion. What is going to drive the growth of the e-commerce category um, in a developing economy like ours, I mean, is it is it purely up to you know the consumer access, internet access, is it all that kind of stuff, um, or is it you know are there any other factors that you think are going to drive the market here? Yeah, so if we start with why I think it has been historically low, there I, I've watched with much frustration over the last fifteen years or so, where where everyone gave their reason why people went shopping online, and a lot of the time they came down to things like internet access. And uh, and maybe payments and and I thought that was that was probably quite limited and quite a good excuse for a lot of physical retailers who were saying, oh, well, there's no point in us going starting to sell online because you know nobody's shopping online. But, but that was a real chicken and egg type of thing where I don't think anyone bought shops online because no one was selling anything online. And so you couldn't shop online. And, and you know, we proved that with the bugs that 11 years ago and with kitchen tools 10 years ago, that 
people had internet access. They, they did have a way of paying, but a lot of the times they just couldn't go about shopping anywhere. Um, the, we, we do have some historical issues. There's, there's no doubt that we are a very spread out country. If you look at, you know, if you look at the UK, which has a 50, 60 million population, all within literally a few hours drive of each other, there's a very high population density. You know, we, if we, if you think of geographically with, with Gauteng and, and Durban and, and Cape Town as being the big centres, they're very far apart from each other and it's quite expensive. We have, and our post office is, is such a weak institution. And so we've got logistical problems. We also never had a catalogue shopping culture. You know, the US for a hundred years was used to seeing a picture of something in a catalogue and ordering it mm. and, and having a trust. South Africa never had that. And so trusting a picture online is, uh, has been quite hard to, to swallow. And we have such a high uh, mall, um, mall to person ratio. We have one of the highest mall to people ratios in the world. And, and there are people who go to malls as their entertainment. That's what you do on a Saturday morning. And you know, internationally, that's not necessarily the case. So, so those are some of the historical factors that, that kept e-commerce very, very small. In the last literally couple of years, we've seen some quite big play. I, I I often um, give a lot of credit to what Groupon did in the market. Uh, not that I'm necessarily a huge fan of Groupon in general, but they, they gave people a reason to shop online. Uh, and it was a deep discounting reason, but it was at least still a reason to shop online. And it caused a lot of people for the very first time to take out their credit cards and trust some sort of online transaction. And, you know, fairly soon after that, you started having um, physical stores make a, a really good effort and they're online. I think Mr. Price has done done a good job. There's, uh, you know, even the, the Fashini group at home and others have, have now, they're shopping, they're selling online. And so you have these these physical institutions that customers trust making an online store uh, that, that just adds a whole lot of credibility compared to, you know, two guys from a lounge in Plumstead saying, shop online, it's so safe and it works. Uh, it's much better if, if the big retailers are having that push. So, so those are the things that are going to, that are going to drive it forward. There's been big investments. You know, if you, if you look at obviously what's uh, take a lot and then the merger with, with Kalahari, there's a lot of money behind that. And then even the others like Alexander like and Superbalist and, and there's, there's been people who are, are pushing this industry forward. And so it's, it's slower, certainly slower than I would like to be. And we've got a long way to go, but I don't think anything has to fundamentally change. We've just got to, just got to keep working and keep providing great experiences for customers. Mm. Um, you mentioned earlier on about the challenge of fulfillment. You know, if, if I've decided today I wanted to start selling stuff online, that fulfillment <clears throat> and is often pointed to, I guess, like Justin Drennan, I don't know if you know him, the CEO of Parcel Ninja. Yeah, so he was on the show in the early days. <laughs> and of course, you know, these services are looking at kind of solving this fulfillment problem. So what's your advice to a guy looking to start out? So imagine, you know, two other guys in Plumstead <laughs> with kids at home. <laughs> um, and they don't want boxes and the hassle of trying to, you know, manage work-life family <laughs> balance, I guess. Yeah. Um, so do you recommend just out going the outsource routes or do you think that there's um, equity um, at a process or proprietary technology level to actually develop your own fulfillment systems while it's more costly in the long term? The benefits obviously scale from there. Yeah. So that is, that is a good question. And to an extent in, in a lot of areas, uh, the, the reason we developed our own 
technology, the actual website and a lot of our, our backend systems. And the reason we did our own warehousing was partly because 10 years ago, there was nobody doing this. And if I look at where the market's at now, um, with, with with Justin at Plus on the on the logistics side and with a number of off-the-shelf uh, or software-as-a-service type of uh, online platforms, there is, there, there is no doubt that you can get into it at a at a, at a level which makes it, um, you know, turn it on and it's there. Our background was in technology, so I guess that was part of the, the fun and the challenge uh, was building things ourselves. But, I, yeah, I guess it does depend on, on who you're at. If, you, if you're trying to be a major future player, you're probably going to have to do more yourself because I think that that is part of what your offering is and part of what you differentiate it. Um, if you, let's say you're, you've developed a product or the import of some product and really you just need someone else to take care of the website and fulfillment, your, your real, what you bring to the party is, is the product itself. Um, then, then it's fine to outsource. Uh, we are, you know, if you look at what Yappy Chef is, we, the products that we sell are products you can get in other places and there's nothing necessarily, we don't, we don't try and sell them at the cheapest price. We don't try and, uh, and, and, and necessarily sell products that you can't get anywhere else. And so for us, a, whole, a lot about the logistics and fulfillment is, uh, is what differentiates us. Yeah, a handwritten card in every order, I, I think that's going to be quite hard to either outsource or to find some off-the-shelf system that can cope with it. And, and even the way that we do things like wedding registries, the way that we do you know, our, our gift boxes and our, our mixed cases of beer and wine, you know, we've got a lot, part of our product is in our fulfillment process. And so I, I think it is going to be a case-by-case basis. I, I do think the important thing is just to start and, you know, don't spend years and years and years trying to perfect the technology or the logistics side and then say, oh, crap, now I've got to work out how to make some sales. You know, the most important thing is, is there a customer for your product? And then the, the technology and the logistics must play catch up to that. Mm-hmm. I was interviewing um, Jim Harris uh, the other day. He's um, a number one international best-selling author on disruptive innovation and so on. And he was describing to me that in when it comes to unlocking value through innovation, that 90% of the value is at a business model and or a process level. And this again ties back to the fulfillment question and so on. But for you, I'd like to understand where do you see um, the innovation agenda materializing in the e-commerce category? Do you know the, if, if we ask our customers the, the, the typical net promoter score question, which is, you know, would you recommend us to your friends and family? And, and you've got to an answer on a scale of one to 10. And, and, and you get your answer from that, and that gives you an overall picture of how you're doing. But then the follow-up question is, why did you answer in that way? And you customers will then give you, in their words, why they would recommend you or not recommend you. And, and here's an interesting kind of uh, split in the road. You've got people like Steve Jobs saying, our customers don't know what they want. And so I, I, they would, our customers would never have come up with, you know, the iPhone because they wouldn't have known how to describe it. Or Henry Ford who said, if I asked my customers what they want, they would have said a faster horse. So you've got this, this kind of one school of thought, which is that, you know, we know the answers and we know where innovation must lie. But you've got another train of thought, which is that if you get so stuck up in your own ideas of, of what you think is needed, you can sometimes become removed 
from, from real customers and what they care about. And, you know, when we ask customers what do they care about, they, they will say things like, like the range and the ease of use of the website and um, they'll use the word delivery. You use the word fulfillment, but it's, it's a similar concept. And, you know, and the service that we receive and, and, and the loyalty that, that we feel from us, they use very simple words. They, they don't, uh, you know, the, the technology innovations or the ideas we've had, that's not necessarily why people shop with us or recommend us to somewhere else. And so, you know, we've really tried to say, let's just get better and better at those things, the, those specific things that customers will will think about us and will come back to us for and will recommend us to their friends. Uh, we, we're not out to, to reinvent the wheel. We, we're not out to sort of introduce some whole brand new way of, of, of shopping or commerce or business. Um, there will be some people who do that. But, you know, for us in a, in a business that now supports We've got 85 staff and we've been going for 10 years. We we want to just make sure that our innovation is, is focused around things that customers really care about. And, and that will be both our differentiator and our, our opportunity for growth. Mm. It's funny how things always tend to stay the same. As much as the world becomes more complex and the options as entrepreneurs are, you know, just more and more compounded year on year, that the fundamentals of business just stay the same. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like um, small town rules for me. Like they, yeah. they're still very much prevalent, even in today's digitally enabled economy. It's like I always use the story about how uh, if you imagine going in the 1800s, cowboy times, or whenever that was exactly, I'm no experts. <laughs> I watched John Wayne movies. That was about it. <laughs> but I mean, like if you had a butchery and you saw, and I saw Andrew coming, walking towards my door, like I know that you always order a pound of beef. Right, but because I read the local newspaper, I know that your son plays baseball, for instance. So when you come in, I can start talking to you. But hey, how was you know Greg's little Greg's baseball game or whatever? And you start talking to the customer. It's a two-way conversation, and he's like, "Geez, this guy's so awesome," or Matt's so awesome. In this case, you'll also take a pound of ham and maybe some bread as well. You know what I'm saying? It's that kind of dynamic that I think is is the is the authentic kind of value that e-tailers I guess should be looking at creating mm-hmm. yeah you know there's a um, I, I was listening to a, a talk for the, the founder of Ocado which is a, a UK based grocery business and he, he talks about how technology uh, is, a, is a democratizer of service and so if you think of, of, of what, is, what does a billionaire have access to and a billionaire says I think I'd like to go to the shops now. I think I'd like to, you know, go down the street. And he he sort of raises his hand, and his, his chauffeur-driven car arrives out his front door, and he steps in the car, and off he goes. And and if you think of what Uber has done, Uber has meant that I can have that same experience that a billionaire has because of technology. So I, I tap something on the phone and the chauffeur-driven car arrives outside my door. And technology has the opportunity to bring what has only been accessible to the billionaires and make it accessible to to everyone. And so, you know, that, that's similar to what you're saying is that uh, a, a huge supermarket chain cannot customize the experience um, in, the, in a kind of the recreate that small town experience because it's too anonymous and there's, 
there's just too many potential tellers and too many customers that are going through one place. But from an e-commerce point of view, we, we're, in, we're able to give our customers like, you know, hey, how's that knife going that you bought recently? Do you need a sharpener for it? You know, because we know more, we can offer the type of service that before would only be available to the billionaire. And, and that's quite exciting. And I guess that's where we'd like our innovation to go, not to, not to reinvent something new, but almost to bring back what we had and then we lost in the 20th century where, where business and particularly retail became incredibly anonymous. Mm. What are your thoughts on the Unilever acquisition of the, of the $1 Shave Club? Yeah, I mean, that, was a, that was an interesting one. And it, um, I think it caught a few people by surprise for, for a couple of reasons. One of them being, you know, Unilever, who's traditionally seen as one level removed from a customer. So, you know, they would obviously deal through the big retail chains. And, and so it, perhaps it, it tends to this idea that the brand owners uh, want to have more direct access to customers. They, they want to be facilitating that they want the data that the retailers have. You know, a, a traditional brand owner right now knows nothing about their customers. They, they don't know who they are and how they shop and how often they shop. All of that power, all of that knowledge sits in, in the retailers. And I guess the brands want to want to win some of that power back for themselves. They, 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 don't, they feel like there's more margin to be gained if they can deal directly. Uh, and they want access to that data. They want the, they want the knowledge that exists around it. I think that Unilever, if you look at the rest of their their product stable, um, they haven't necessarily been strong in the uh, in the kind of razor market. Um, there's been others that have been bigger than them, but they have a lot of other products that uh, that if this works for them in this model, then maybe it can can apply in others. I mean, there's obviously also the surprise where the the price that was paid a billion dollars is something like more than five times Dollar Shave Club's revenue, and you know traditional retailers. You know, Walmart is worth less than 50% of its annual revenue. So you look at the kind of the new economy of, of, um, of valuations and how the, the big traditional uh, industries, either corporate or, or brand owners or manufacturers, are, are saying, you know, what, what's been developed in uh, either in Dollar Shape Club or a similar deal with Walmart buying Jet.com. You know, there's a lot of value here, which we can leapfrog our own efforts into this area by us, uh, by us acquiring them and, and then learning from what they've already done. Mm. What are your thoughts on subscription service models in general? I mean, do you think, um, you know, we're seeing more and more of them, even locally. I mean, I can rattle off a dozen now. Um, what are your thoughts on them, first of all? And what do you think makes a you know, a long-term successful subscription service? I think there's, there's two types of, you know, the word subscription can probably be broken down into two, two types of purchase. One is literally just a repeat purchase. So if I buy dog feed every month or nappies every month, and I just want it delivered every month in order to, to take away that inconvenience of forgetting about it or, or maybe there's some sort of cost benefits in doing that. And, and I think that that does work. You know, often a lot of the things that want to, that people want to repeat, if you think of dog food and, and nappies, are logistically very difficult uh, and the margins are very low. And so perhaps there's some advantages to be gained from the retailer's point of view, if I know exactly where I'm delivering, when I can provide a little bit of savings, but those aren't necessarily the most appealing products for a retailer to sell. So I think that could work. It's probably going to work in an Amazon context where they want to end up winning a lot of, a lot of your repeat purchases. And so they bundle all of the things that you do together. I think it will be quite difficult to just sell 
you know, repeat purchase of dog food or nappies online. You're going to, you're going to really struggle in that sense. I have seen some models do that, particularly from a B2B type of setup. So office supplies that are delivered regularly. That, that is, a, I think that's a great example of, of a kind of replenishing model where, where offices just want that to be set up once and then not have to worry about it again. They always mm-hmm. want printer cartridges and bin liners and dishwasher liquid. They just want that taken care of. The other whole category uh, is is what you would think about more as kind of subscription boxes, slightly more curated, and that kind of fits into um, a, a few different. There's a few different examples of that. There's obviously the people who are trying to do that with ingredients. And so that could be Blue Apron or locally it could be Daily Dish, which is this idea that, you know, we will we will solve some other type of pain. It's not just that you want the thing to arrive every month, but you actually want to take away some other type of, of pain or solve some other type of problem. So in their case, it would be, you know, the ingredients and recipes that you don't have to worry about what you cook. It's just provided for you. Um, you know, other examples could be, in uh, you know what Yappy Chef does is we do subscription of of beer and wine, which is just, I want there to be some interesting craft beers or some some good wine in my fridge all the time. Um, but I'm actually part of what I'm paying for is the curation, the selection side. That you know you bring me something interesting, uh, and then you know or similar could be uh, neck socks, which is you know send me some interesting socks every month. So it's not just a repeat; it's more of uh, it's more of a kind of membership subscription, something different. And, mm. um, and there's, there's been a lot of hype around that. And certainly if you look at internationally, the, the venture capital that was heavily going into those businesses. And it seems like in the last year, it's, it's dried up a bit. Um, but they're still there. I, I don't know that anyone's necessarily cracked it outright, but we will, we will see, but you probably do have to see them as two quite different businesses and, and think about the, the pain that you're solving in each of them. Mm. Yeah, I think I love that the point you made there about the selection side of things because there's the quantifiable value, which is the stuff that the the customer, I guess, sees in the box and they go, hmm. So I'm going one, two, three, four, five, and then they tell you that up and they go, well, that's what I'd pay in store. So where is the actual value? Do you know what I mean? So then it's all about the selection and the packaging and then maybe there's some additional yeah. bonus things that are that are included, which really makes that value exchange work in the long term. Yeah. Yeah, cool, mate. Listen, I'm, I've got so many more questions, but I've got to include my community, otherwise I'll get hate mail. <laughs> okay, so moving on to part two of the show. Um, the first question here is from Leroy. He says, "If you could put the Yucky Chef story onto a billboard, what would that billboard say?" Cheapest. What, what size is the font? <laughs> Twenty-six, Ariel. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, sure. You know, there's, I, I'm not sure exactly what Leroy, what, what sort of angle he wants to take. And, and we have covered a, a part of the story, but, uh, um, yeah, I get, I, something that I, that I, I sort of mentioned earlier was this idea that we can post rationalize, we can, you know, say all the reasons why it worked for, for us and, and all our clever decisions and all our hard work, but a, but a huge amount of, of why the other shift story worked was because we just did it. We, we just started. And, and so I guess the billboard might say something along the lines. If, if this billboard was out to kind of inspire others, it would probably be along the lines of you just need to start and, and you can figure those things out as you go along. But, um, that, that it's a lot of the good stories, the business stories are involve a lot of luck, but the way that you can increase your luck is to definitely get out the door and, 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 and down the road and then take it from there. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Just start. Great. Got it. Yeah. 
that's a simple billboard. Otherwise, it's too much. <laughs> it's too much. Especially yeah. when you're driving. <laughs> yeah. I love these billboards. It's like, how many words do you want to put on there, Mr. Brand? You know? Yeah. yeah <laughs> Speaking of advertising, um, Carol says here, how much of your marketing budget is spent on search? I guess she's asking for a percentage. Um, yeah, you know, search is a great is a great advertising channel because a lot of the times people know uh, you already know that they're quite far down the, the, the channel, particularly if they're searching for particular brands. You know, so if someone searched for buy KitchenAid mixer online, I mean that is just the ultimate keyword for us to bid on because we already know that they that they know the brand that they're looking for. They know they want to buy it online. Um, you know, that's a, that's a sure winner. And then you've got to look further up to when someone just might search for knives. Now, then we've got no idea what they're searching for there. You know, they mm. want to know how to make a hunting knife or they, you know, they want to rent a thousand knives for a conference. Like, you've got no idea where it's at. And so I think that our, there, there's, we will spend almost as much as we can on those real certain winner kind of keywords, uh, particularly around brands and products and, and showing some attention to buy. Um, and then on the, on the, the looser words and brands and, and search intention, that's probably going to vary depending on, on, on where we see the markets at, depending on who the competition is. You know, there's a lot of other people in that particular sort of subcategory or, or sub brand. We, we might stay away from it. So, I mean, I don't have an exact percentage here. I'd say that it has always been a fairly big part of our, of, of our marketing budget, of our ad spend budget, because it is very trackable and very definable. Um, but it does vary a bit depending on, on the success we've seen. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, next question is from Greg. He says, how much uh, SEO do you do? Search engine optimization. Sure. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing. Like, if you, if you look at the real, the real success of, of, uh, of sites and search engines, a lot of it's not because they did SEO, it's because they did other things. They did content um, and they, they did community building and they did... Uh, uh, they won awards, and and so I think that we've we obviously try and follow the the, the best practices. We we will we will look at how is our site being seen by the search engines. You know, do we have the right structure? Is it loading fast? Uh, there are those types of things. We we don't perhaps do what would be in we don't do a lot of what would be in other people's. SEO manual about sort of you know real real strong efforts in terms of link building and 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 some of those practices that are that are questionable at best and you can put a whole lot of time and effort into it and then the search engines change the algorithms where you know if you create a site that people want to go to and want to link to if that's if you call that SEO well then we do a lot of that um, if you don't call it SEO then well then we probably don't do much of it so you do a lot of SEO different. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, last question from the community. Simon says, what was the last thing you bought online and who did you buy it for? Huh, well, it's, it's my wife's birthday on Friday. So I am, I'm busy. I'm busy looking at things right now online. Um, I, we actually bought a printer now that I think about it. We bought a, pr- a printer last week uh, for home and uh, we, we searched around. I, I hate buying printers because I, I feel like if I go into a store, I'm going to be bamboozled by a shop assistant who's got you know more commissions selling this brand over that brand, and I think that that's where there was a 
That's where online is a great example of it. I can see all of the products, all the different brands. I can read reviews. I can investigate the price of the refills and the cartridges. I don't need to touch and feel the printer. To I don't need to try it on and see that it's too big or too small. And so, yeah, we bought a printer last week and it seems to be a decent printer. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a good experience. Awesome. Awesome. All righty. Um, cool. So I generally tee these up as rapid fire questions, but in, invariably <laughs> I don't get very rapid answers. So don't feel pressure. So here we go. Rapid fire. The last uh, part of the interview and then we'll let you get back to, to running Yappy Chef. Um, what book have you gifted to someone else the most? I, I love Zero to One by Peter Thiel at the moment. It might not be the most gifted of all time, but it's certainly what I'm trying to give and encourage people to read now. I think it is such a good entrepreneurial business book. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? Uh, I try and say it. I've said it during this interview, but I wish people would ask more about how much luck was involved. I think people want, they want the magic bullet. They want that one thing that we did because they want to be able to copy that. They're almost afraid of saying, tell us about the luck and the, and the good timing because they know that's in something outside of their control. Yeah. Timing is critical. Absolutely. Okay. Um, what problem do you face every day that nobody else has solved yet? <laughs> Staff and stock. <laughs> Those are the two most, they're the two most difficult things and they're, they're not solvable. I guess they're just the big challenges of, of business and particular retail businesses is, is structuring a large team, um, keeping everyone engaged and happy and, and, and fulfilled and working hard. And then, Stock, you know, having the right amount of, of cash in stock and having the right stock in the right range, um, those, are, those are two really big challenges to continue to try and solve. Okay. How do you balance work life and family? Uh, I, you know, I started Yappy Chef when my oldest son was six months old. So I, I have always had young kids throughout this journey. They're now, I've got two sons, 10 and eight. And in a way, there's, there's a forced, I, I try to like get home after work and see them before they go to bed. So, so that's been good for me in terms of um, the amount of time spent in the office. I still work on the evenings and the weekends, but, um, you know, young kids are, are demanding. And I think it's actually been healthy to, to make time for that. Um, I don't have a very... I don't have a very split life. I, my emails on my phone and my laptops at home, but I think it is trying to make those moments, which just says I, I'm going to be focused on family now and I'm going to be focused on work at this other time and keep them, keep them in their places. Okay. Very good. Um, when you hear the word successful, who do you think of and why? I, I mean, this is going to sound like a, like the easy answer at the moment. I have a lot of respect for Elon Musk, not not because right now he's he has solved all the problems, but I guess the problems he's trying to solve, I think, are are really great. He's assuming that he continues to the trajectory that he has. He's going to have he's going to be in a successful in, in changing the world in a significant way. And I think too many entrepreneurs and business owners see success as as effectively just getting a bunch of the, the world's resources moved into their bank account. Whereas I, I think success for me is, is actually creating something when there was nothing there before. And, and so he's probably the pinnacle of that right now. 
Okay, this one is interesting. If you only had 60 minutes and only 60 minutes to solve a problem, how do you spend your time? So I, I guess there's got to be a component, which is speaking to people, researching, see what else is out there. Uh, there's going to be a component, which is, which is planning, and there's a component, which is executing. And, uh, and I, I don't know the exact proportion of those. I, I, you know, my background was in technology, and, so, and I still even do bits of coding and bits of you know, systems work. And so I do have a practical side of me, and, um, and so I, I probably want to do all of those pieces in, in, within the 60 minutes. And see how far we can get. Okay, very good. Okay, second last question. Um, if I gave you the keys to a time machine, congratulations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and you could, hiding them. Yeah, no, geez, wouldn't it be great? <laughs> uh, but And you got into that time machine and you were sitting across from yourself as a 20-year-old over a cup of coffee. What advice, one piece of advice would you give yourself as a 20-year-old either about life or business? Yeah, I don't. I don't want to change much of the journey um, you know, because the ups and the downs have got us to where we are now. And, uh, and so there's very few. There's very few big regrets or big mistakes or anything that I want to change. So probably what I would want to tell myself is is to is to enjoy the journey and to kind of relax that that it's going to work out and it's going to be good uh, because. There's, yeah, I, I suppose if there's any regret, it would just be, did I, did I enjoy every day and every part of the journey as, as much as I could have? Um, mm-hmm. Awesome. That's a great piece of advice. By the way, I get that, res- that answer a lot from uh, the guys. Okay. In the show. Yeah. And last question then for you, mate. Um, what is your why as an entrepreneur? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Yeah, so there's a, you know, Yappy Chef has got a why and it's got a mission, particularly around food and eating to, eating together. Um, if you take it one step back to me as an entrepreneur, I, I, I'm dissatisfied with the world. I'm dissatisfied with the way that things work and, and I want to make them better. I, I, I'm not, you know, my journey is, is, a, is a fairly non-conformist one, starting with dropping out of, of university and I, I don't look at the world and just go, okay, well, I guess we'll just do what everything has been done before. So I look at something and say, you know, e-commerce could be done better or business could be done better. And, and you know, why not me to, to, make, a, to make a change? So, yeah. Okay, amazing. Andrew Smith, that concludes your interview on the Digital Kung Fu Show. Thank you once again for your time today. It's been an absolute honor and privilege to be able to share your story. And here's uh, wishing you all the another 10 years, hey? Uh, maybe we'll regroup yeah. hopefully again before then because <laughs> you'll be doing something awesome. But um, but yeah, wishing you sincerely all the, all the very best for the future. Thank you. Thank you, mate. Great to be on the show. Remember that the Digital Kung Fu Show is now on iTunes, so head on over there now and leave us a review. You can also catch the Digital Kung Fu Show on player.fm, Stitcher, and cliffcentral.com. Thanks for listening to the Digital Kung Fu Show. If you'd like to check out more episodes and get access to our growing community of entrepreneurs working together to succeed in business, then please visit our website at www.digitalkungfu.co.za. 
Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com. 